Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. My name is Chandra Back, the podcast director here at the Center, and today we will be listening to a segment of the February Sawyer Seminar. In this episode, we will listen to a talk given by Dr. Isabella Trombetta, entitled Search and Rescue and Migrant Interdiction at Sea. Thank you for this wonderful introduction. Um, And I'm here today, I'm really thankful to be here today. I'm going to talk about what does border externalization look like at sea. Uh, In particular, in the Mediterranean Sea, where I worked with a search and rescue NGO um, before starting my PhD in 2017. Um, So what does border externalization look like at sea? How do we draw borders in a space that is uh, impossible to govern, that is so expanse, uh, it's such a large expanse of water that uh, it's even an oxymoron to think about the sea and a border, a physical border at the same time. Um, So I'm also a big fan of uh, Shahar and and, um, the framing of how um, it's not so much uh, thinking about people moving to, to cross border, but borders moving to exclude or include people. Um, and here's some example of what uh, Noor and Kaya were saying, uh, the, the representation of the Irish border in Dublin that you mentioned, or the uh, bleeding inward, the constitution free zone um, in the United States and the latest Italy, Libya um, meeting that there was just recently last week. Um, so these are certain ways in which externalization can, can, uh, can look like, but how does it look like in a space like the central Mediterranean? And I always like to put the entire map when I talk about the Mediterranean to show how actually different, different routes are. We have, and you can see Morocco to Spain, it's actually a very small piece of the sea that people need to cross to cross the border. Same with Greece, a little larger, but, uh, uh, a more uh, uh, a different coast, a different coastline that has more islands, and so a different kind of crossing. But then, when you look at the distance between Libya and Italy, or Libya and Malta, it's actually an expanse of 290 uh, uh, kilometers uh, to cross. So, when I was thinking about this, I started thinking: so, how can we trace borders in such a space? And of course. There is an answer of this in international maritime law, according to the 1982 Montego Bay Treaty or UNCLOS. Um, we have the division between territorial waters and international waters, which is, according to international law, the um, space of jurisdiction, of territorial jurisdiction of a state that goes up to 12 nautical miles from uh, the baseline, from the coast. So, what happens in the rest of it in international waters? And uh, as you were saying before, we have international waters that have gone from being the common good to being considered the no man's land where states uh, can push their activities to avoid responsibility other put in place by others or by their own laws, national laws or international like in the case of the European Union. So how does it look like when we talk about migration, when we talk about crossings? Where, well, when we think about that space, we would say, okay, migrants need to cross from Libya, so exit their border and cross the sea to then cross the Maltese or Italian borders of territorial waters. But a boat like this one, 
or a boat like this one that is overcrowded and unseaworthy very, very rarely makes it to shore. There was a big shipwreck in 2003, uh, 13, sorry, uh, off the coasts of Lampedusa where hundreds of people lost their lives. And it's really the incident that kicked off Operation Mare Nostrum uh, at the time, which I will go into more detail uh, later. That kind of shook Europe. So when we look at the map, when we go back to the map, we see how um, this is where most incidents at sea happen, whether they're search and rescue or interdictions. And I'm going to go into more detail later. Um, because the difference between search and rescue and interdiction is re really where the border lies. So we're not just talking about a physical border, we're talking about a legal border, a border between the application of international humanitarian law and the not application of international maritime law. And here I brought the uh, definitions where we have search and rescue that is an, an operation where you search the boat in distress and then you rescue. And I stress the emphasis on this because in order to rescue someone, you need to not only recover them and offer basic assistance, but also disembark them in a place of safety. And the definition of a place of safety, of safety is a bit ambiguous in international law, uh, but it is a place where the basic rights of the people can be respected. And while that seemed pretty straightforward, it is not so straightforward when we think of the, about the fact that the people who are being rescued are actually potential asylum seekers. So parts of their rights, according to international law, uh, are also include the rights of uh, having a fair asylum hearing and even just applying for asylum. And that's where it gets tricky. So when we think about search and rescue, then we think about, okay, then really the borders at sea are not just the international waters. Maybe the borders at sea are the search and rescue zones where states intervene at sea to rescue, recover those people. But that is not so much the case because very rarely do uh, boats filled with migrants actually make it to cross past the Libyan SAR, SAR zone that was self-declared in 2018. And yet, some people make it to Europe and some people don't. So it's not really the space that is important in this case. It is, again, who saves it. Um, so when we talk about the borders in the Central Mediterranean, we talk about the intersection between international maritime law and international protection of refugees, where uh, not only do we need to look at the uh, right to disembark in a place of safety, but the right to access, to have access to asylum. And most importantly, the right not to be refouled, not to be sent back, not to be pushed back is the word that's more common. Um, and this is where my research com comes in place, um, where uh, I theorize that um, actually the borders at this point follow the boats that perform search and rescues in the Mediterranean. Uh, because as you can see, a boat in distress, and here's the definition of boat in distress, um, once they're picked up by European boats, and by European boats, I mean NGO boats or private boats, uh, then there's a chain of international obligations, the duty to render assistance, the duty to disembark in a place of safety, and a place of safety being somewhere where the principle of non-refoulement and their access to asylum is respected, makes it so that the moment that you encounter someone in need of rescue at sea, is the moment in which the migrant encounters the border. And that, and on the other uh, side, on the flip side, we have um, when a boat in distress is met instead in the same spot at sea, 
in the same international waters, in the same search and rescue zone by the so-called Libyan Coast Guard, then uh, once they're met with them, they're sent back from the place, in the place they're fleeing from, and then set into, sent back to detention, and then they have to pay ransom and go back, as it's been um, put together by several international organizations and even the UN. Um, so how does that explain what's happening then? Um, if we assume at this point that the, the place in which the migrant meets the border, the European border in this case, is the boat because of the application of international law, then we can understand better the, the way in which the European response has been shaped throughout these years. Um, and so here I put together a timeline of the scope of European operations at sea. And here we go also into the um, privatization, I guess, of uh, search and rescue and pushbacks. And we see how the first response of the European Union and Italy in particular was Operation Mare Nostrum, the first one uh, on top, where the scopes were safeguard of human rights, comply with search and rescue obligations and uh, committing human smuggling and trafficking. And then just one year later, this was in response to that shipwreck that I showed you. Just one year later, the operation was shut down. It became a European operation, a Frontex operation. And uh, slowly but surely, we start seeing how the um, safeguard of human life and compl compliance with the search and rescue obligations completely disappear from the scopes of uh, these operations all the way to 2020 with Operation Irini that gets uh, to the other extreme countering terrorism. Um, but that also shows how actually the search and rescue NGOs at sea, so the private actors at sea, um, had to fill that space more and more while at the same time being criminalized. Um, this is a, a visual representation of the search and rescue uh, boats and aircraft that's present at sea at the time. And we see how from 2014, the response went all the way to 2016 with about 12 search and rescue boat, private search and rescue boats at sea on top of the European efforts that then started being criminalized more and more um, to go all the way to zero during the pandemic. Um, and that is inexplicable. Why wouldn't a European state want help in safeguarding human rights at sea off their own coasts, which they did in the beginning, as we can see from the increase, um, both from the increase of the number of NGOs at sea and the uh, collaboration that there was between states and the NGOs at sea? Well, the answer then, if the border, uh, the point at which the migrant meet the, meets the border is the boat, is the deck of the boat, wherever they are at sea, then that explains that search and rescue NGOs become very uncomfortable border outposts at sea where we don't, uh, so we don't want them to be out there. And in this case, we want them to be as far away possible from the international waters where they can meet. Um, migrant boats. Um, and here we go back to what Nora was uh, anticipating earlier, the difference between the interpretation of these law, the interpretation of the non-refoulement principle, which is really where um, this interpretation makes a difference in, in border drawing uh, at sea, where we have um, in Europe, the more recent Raketa cases, but the core Kirsi Gemma and others versus Italy case uh, that really sets in stone the fact that uh, the country that has, or the boat or the captain that has the de jure and de facto um, uh, uh, 
application uh, uh, on, of the law on the boat is who's responsible for non for non uh, for non refoulement in that case, or so for pushing back uh, people from the countries that they're fleeing from. Whereas in the U.S., we have the exact opposite interpretation that actually comes out to the same policy outcomes uh, of the law, where the principle of non refoulement <clears throat> is uh, not applicable extraterritorially. So. Uh, Coast, uh, American Coast Guard that retrieves someone's at sea, not rescue, retrieves someone's at sea and brings them back to wherever they're fleeing from. Uh, that's actually not considered refoulement according to the U.S. Supreme Court. For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.